Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 13th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, <clears throat> excuse me, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I really don't like to discuss news or current events, but this evening I have a really short program. So I will take a few minutes to discuss the latest media scare. This week, I've seen a lot of inquiries in social media concerning coronavirus, and I have gotten some requests for comments. Some people have even asked me whether this was in the revelation of Jesus Christ or to speculate as to what would happen next, things that I certainly cannot do. But I will give an opinion. My first response this morning was to make a post on my Facebook account, which said, you might just die reading the news that deadly, highly contagious coronavirus is all over it. But all kidding aside, coronavirus is a generic name for a family of viruses that have been known to exist for a long time. Although mutations of the virus created by labs have actually been patented. When news of coronavirus first broke well over a month ago, I very quickly found a patent for a family of coronavirus strains listed at justia.com. Justia.com is a website where you could search for patents. That patent is held by the Peerbright Institute. They're related to the same institute that cloned Dolly the Sheep a few years ago. And in turn, the Peerbright Institute is held by the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council, part of a non-governmental organization called United Kingdom Research and Innovation, which is nevertheless controlled by the government of the United Kingdom. But the patented viruses are not the only coronaviruses. The name has been used for years to describe a certain type of virus, and it is found in older medical books and even on disinfectant labels, such as for products such as Lysol. Tens of thousands of people die every year from the flu, every single year. Lately, the figures have been higher than normal, but so-called coronavirus scares are highly exaggerated. This is all just another ploy by the controlled media to strike fear in the hearts of lemmings and increase government control over our lives. I even remember as a child that Asia, China in particular, was blamed as the source for most flu viruses. It was often mentioned in news reports, even in the 1970s. In a September 2018 Stat News article, stat.com or, I'm sorry, probably statnews.com. In a September 2018 article, discussing a report by the United States Center of Disease Control, the CDC, as it's popularly known. During the previous winter, 80,000 people 
in the United States died from the flu. Apparently, at least most of the deaths were caused by influenza A virus subtype H3N2. They don't have a fancy name for that one. Maybe they should have called it the Death Star virus or something. Something sinister. The article read, in part, That's huge, said Dr. William Schaffner, a Vanderbilt University vaccine expert. The tally was nearly twice as much as what health officials previously considered a bad year, he said. So 40,000 deaths during one flu season would be considered a bad year. In recent years, flu-related deaths have ranged from about 12,000, I'm sorry, 12,000 to, in the worst year, 56,000, according to the Center for Disease Control. Now, from the entire article, I gleaned that by recent years, they're talking about from the mid-70s forward. And at least 12,000 people in the United States have died every year from the flu in the mid-70s forward, from the mid-70s forward, up to as many as 56,000 in the worst year prior to 2018, when 80,000 people were estimated to have died from flu. Then, a little further on in the article, it reads, CDC officials called the 80,000 figure preliminary, and it might be slightly revised, but they said it is not expected to go down. It eclipses the estimates for every flu season going back to the winter of 1976-77. Estimates for many earlier seasons were not readily available. Last winter was not the worst flu season on record, however. The 1918 flu pandemic, which lasted nearly two years, killed more than 500,000 Americans, historians estimate. The Spanish flu, it was called that year. In 2018, hospital and health officials must have been at least partially aware that tens of thousands of people were dying of the flu. But there were no basketball game cancellations. There were no school closings. There were no runs on toilet paper. And there were no stock market crashes. In fact, there was no media scare at all. Not that I remember. When I was 18, I got a sore throat. I had a 104-degree fever for five days. My mother swore I was ill-fated. I was taken to a doctor in the early days of the fever and given antibiotics. I was in bed for a total of eight days. I lost 15 pounds, and I was very weak for a few days more. That was also, and, and I lost 15 pounds at a time when I weighed about 180 pounds, so it was a lot. That was also the last time in my life that I saw a doctor because I was ill. Haven't been back since. I was also working at the time loading trucks. And before getting sick, I was a picture of health. And it was at that time in my life when I could not afford any vices. 
So it wasn't like I drank too much and I was susceptible to the flu. That's not true at all. I had a few beers every Friday night, and that was about it for the rest of the week. So I never would have expected to get that sick from a flu. But my point is this. Flus can be bad, and people die from them all the time. Usually, however, mostly only the elderly and the weak, people who are already compromised, are killed by them. And how many people in the United States died from coronavirus so far? According to a report published early this morning in USA Today, the administration stepped up its efforts in the immediate aftermath of the World Health Organization declaring the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic and the global death toll surpassing 5,000. Are you kidding me? 5,000? Yeah, it sounds terrible. Compare that to 1918 when... 80,000 Americans died from the flu. Confirmed cases in the United States exceeded 1,700. And House Speaker, I don't know why she's an authority, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Friday there have been 41 deaths. Friday is today, this morning. Relatively speaking, compared to those pandemics or those flu die-offs or, or the number of flu victims from just a couple of years ago, relatively speaking, this is a non-issue, but it is being declared a global pandemic. Most people seem to be going along with the media scare. My wife, Melissa, went shopping today as we are having some friends over tomorrow evening. She told me when she came home that both of the Walmart stores in Panama City Beach, were completely out of toilet paper. Usually they have a whole aisle of toilet paper. One whole aisle, no paper towels or tissues or anything mixed in. One whole aisle of toilet paper, and they were completely out. Now, I don't know how toilet paper is going to save anyone from such a dreaded disease, but there is really a run on it. As a friend in Missouri this past Wednesday night also reported to the people in our online Bible study that the Walmarts and the other stories in southern Missouri, where he lives, were out of toilet paper. So I joked with our friends that we were hiding our toilet paper when they come tomorrow night and that they would have to bring their own. Maybe we should seal some up and bury it in the yard with a note explaining why we did something so stupid. But of course, I'm being sarcastic. To me, the whole coronavirus scare is a hoax. And there are other agendas which are being fulfilled. They're projecting that hundreds of thousands of people could die from a flu that so far only 1,700 people have. And out of 1,700, there have apparently been only 41 deaths. But they're scaring us in the media and people are reacting to it and going along with it. Now, exactly what those agendas are, we may not yet be able to determine, but ultimately, we can be assured of one thing, more government control over the daily aspects of our lives. That's all I have to say of the coronavirus. And 
Yeah, you know, I might be sticking my neck out there. I really don't like to say what might happen in the future. But I got a hunch that in six months, this is all going to be forgotten. I, I mean, that's my hunch. That's the way I feel right now. It might turn out to be something terrible. But will 80,000 people die? Or will it reach the, the level of the Spanish flu die, the Spanish flu deaths in 1918? Somehow, I doubt it. There were reports that Israeli, of course, the Jews to the rescue, right? It's the devil's creation, and he's going to rule over it. There were reports that Israeli medical labs already have a virus that's being presented to the FDA for approval. So maybe the Jews will appear to be the saviors of the world, when in reality, it is they who have poisoned the world. And that's, I could pontificate for an hour, but... I'll leave it there. This is all bullshit, and there's some angle on it that eventually we'll know, but we don't know right now. That's my opinion from everything I've seen, and, and I did take a good, honest look at all of this um, a few times over the past few days, but also in greater depth this morning. Now, for our purpose this evening we are going to present a critical review of a sermon by Bertrand Compare titled The Time of the Heathen. And I'm going to say up front that some people are going to think that I'm beating up on Bertrand Compare. And I will say it again in this presentation, and I've said it before, that some of his mistakes concerning um, prophecy I'm certain I have also made if I lived during his time. I'm not beating up on Bertrand Compare at all. I would love Bertrand Compare if I ever had the honor of meeting him. The people that I'm trying to beat up on, I'm trying to beat up on in order to awaken them to the fact that Christian identity scholarship must progress because Bertrand Compare made some mistakes, and certainly did not have all of the answers. So that is why I am doing this this evening, because I'm sick of hearing that Compre and Swift had it all, and we don't need anything more than what they told us, and that's all clearly bullshit. While I admire and respect Bertrand Compre as a trailblazer in developing and spreading the truth of our Christian identity profession. I also believe that his message had a lot of flaws, but some of his errors were merely due to the time in which he lived. And if I had also lived back then, as I just said, doing what I do now, I may well have repeated them. Perhaps if I lived back then, I would just be a truck driver or, or a carpenter or something. This is because Compre's view of eschatology was a product of the Cold War, and apparently he did not see any possibilities of an end-of-the-world scenario which may have transcended that age of apparent conflict. And I say apparent conflict purposely, because the Cold War isn't even what it appeared to be. But other flaws can evidently be attributed to the fact that his message was not fully developed. And for that reason, 
it had some internal conflicts. For example, while Compare recognized that there were goat nations and sheep nations, which were genetic races of people with contrary destinies. And of course, he also knew that the identity of the sheep was with modern white Europeans. He sometimes also looked at goat nations as if they could somehow be allies of the sheep. And here, he clearly makes that mistake. So, in the aftermath of our critique of Compare's sermon on the sheep and the goats, I believe that was two weeks ago, I thought to offer a critique of this sermon as well, and hopefully even some of our skeptics who continued to cling to Compare's views in at least most areas will themselves see the need for refinement and revision, which we, meaning both Clifton Emmerheiser and myself, had been pressing for many years. It was perhaps around 15 years ago that Clifton had asked me to look, look at and edit his transcriptions of Compre's sermons on the Revelation, which I had not read before that time. Doing that, I supplied Clifton with hundreds of notes, which he published along with his finished product. First at IsraelElect.com, and later I moved it all to the Comparate Archive at Christagenia. Back then, I was still in prison, and Clifton had some other editors as well, and there were some occasional conflicts of opinion as to what Comparate had intended. So perhaps one day I will listen to the sermons and update the project. But while making those notes for Clifton, I realized that while much of Compare's perspective was excellent, and while his historical method of interpreting prophecy was indeed the only valid view, I had already realized that from reading Compare and, and other writers much earlier, we really needed, I realized that we really needed to start our own Revelation commentary from scratch. Of course, my first attempt to do that was not until Christrike, which was at first a series of podcasts made in early 2010 and 2011, and then made into a book and published in early 2012, or so I remember. As I write this, and I'm not really bragging, I'm just stating facts, as I write this, a few essays which I wrote from our own viewpoint on this topic that we will discuss here this evening, which later became podcasts, have now surpassed 200,000 downloads each. They are the... Immigration Problem and Biblical Prophecy, which was presented here in late 2011, and No Safe Haven, Stripped Bare and Naked, presented here in the summer of 2013. All four parts of the series with my friend Donald Fox, titled Beginnings and Ends, 
are also approaching that number. They all have like 180,000 and something downloads. For that, I am humbled and pleased that our message is spreading, even to places where it will probably be rejected. But I also know that that is only a drop in the bucket on the great scale of things. So I hope that we are only just getting started. But even with the faults which we find in his interpretation of prophecy, Bertrand Compré was also quite correct in many respects. There is no doubt that today, and for the last 70 years at least, we are in the time which he had called the time of the heathen. But the time of the heathen, which I would really call the time of Jacob's troubles, did not quite unfold as he had thought that it would. The Americans did not win the Cold War. The Russians did not win the Cold War. Rather, the Jews won the Cold War. Before the symbolic Berlin Wall was taken down, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson ushered in civil rights. Johnson founded the American welfare state and opened the immigration flood from non-white nations. He also introduced both affirmative action and so-called equal opportunity. Every one of those programs is Marxist in nature. Continuing, Nixon upheld all of Johnson's policies and also opened China to trade. Then, Carter federalized education. Reagan popularized globalism, which paved the way for the open borders movement and opened the immigration floodgates even wider while granting amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants. Those and many other equally wicked acts made it expedient for the Jewish plutocrats who had controlled the Soviet Union all along to stage its breakup and split the proceeds amongst themselves. And actually, I remember very well that it was Lawrence Summers, who was at Harvard University at the time, who formed a consulting firm and was hired by Boris Yeltsin to make sure that a dozen Jews received all the wealth of the Soviet Union, all the industry, for pennies on a dollar. The plutocrats no longer needed the Soviet bogeyman to threaten white America and keep it in check because they were able to subvert white America from within. Very often, Compré's interpretation of prophecy is presented from the naive perspective that the West is good and the Communist East is evil, that the capitalist West is good and the Communist East is evil. And that it is along those lines that the final battle would culminate. He often did not seem to consider that the Jews and their puppets who controlled the communist nations were in the pockets of the Jews who had already long controlled the nations of Christendom. 
he did not seem to consider the fact that Christendom was not Christendom any longer since it had accepted the dominance of Jewish capitalism. We would assert that when the kingdom of heaven is established on earth, capitalism shall be destroyed just as well as communism, and all of the earthly governments shall be dissolved, not only those which patriotic Americans may dislike. So the symbolic Berlin Wall did not come down because Russia was defeated. Rather, the wall came down because the West had succumbed to the entire Jewish program of economic globalism, Marxism, multiculturalism, and diversity, which forebode its own ideological defeat. Today, the result is that in America, an avowed communist, a man and a Jew, a man who throughout his entire life has never held a real job, but who instead has always been a parasite, can run for president and enjoy significant popularity, where there is even speculation that he might defeat an incumbent. Compare locked into the Cold War good West versus evil East paradigm, certainly did not foresee that. While we do not know exactly when Bertrand Compare had first given this sermon, it was before the end of the Cold War, and he thought it would all end with a great Soviet invasion of America, which was the traditional Christian identity interpretation of his time, and that opinion was also held by many denominational Christians. So as we proceed with his words, we should keep his perspective in mind since he was attempting to evaluate the possibilities. But his concept of the possibilities were limited to the rather narrow and traditionally conservative political outlook of his day. Compare was not thinking outside the box here. While we probably could have expected Compare to have been thinking outside the box, but in this regard, he failed. Not only in this presentation, in this sermon, but in many of his sermons. His vision was limited by the circumstances of his time. I'm not saying that mine is not, but we must know that we have to progress. So now we shall proceed with The Time of the Heathen by Bertrand Compare. And he begins by saying, It is clear to all that a terrific, truly worldwide war is near. The final lineup is being drawn. And actually, as he was saying those words, the worldwide war was already being lost. <laughs> those who hope to avoid it by compromise and appeasement of evil are just willfully blind. Its purpose is the destruction of the white Christian people and everything they stand for. As the Beatles were about to break free on the Ed Sullivan show, and we were about to sink into an era of decadence. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. We have only two possible choices. Either courageous defense of our lives, lands, and our ideals, 
and having faith in Yahweh's promises of his aid, or choice two, suicide by cowardly surrender to our executioners. Now, in Compre's defense, we may say that he was right and that we did commit suicide by surrendering to our executioners. But the plan of our executioners to implement their desires for global domination, disguised by terms such as capitalism, socialism, and concepts such as equality and diversity, was slowly introduced with great subtlety by our Jewish overlords through the controlled Jewish media and always disguised as righteousness, while all those who did oppose their programs were demonized. In America, this process began with the abolitionist movement and the so-called Civil War, and by the passing of the 14th Amendment, their victory over the perceived Christian liberties of the West became imminent. The battle was lost as soon as it was started. But while most of Compare's sermons were delivered from the late 1960s, perhaps, the, the, I'm sorry, the late 1950s to perhaps the early 1970s, and the country was already well on the way down the path to where it is today, the bigger picture was not yet as clear because the nation was still generally perceived as being both white and Christian. Compare knew of the internal struggle, the internal struggle, but I do not think he really knew of its full depth and how far along the deceit and resulting decay had already advanced. So he continues by explaining the sides of the perceived conflict from the perspective of one who watched the evening news, and he exclaims, Let's look at the lineup. And this is actually horrible. Compare, I could really criticize him for doing this. First, Europe. All of it is white, Christian, and all of it wants to be free. However, half of it is conquered and enslaved. He's talking about Eastern Europe. By the evil connivance of our own politicians. The free half of Europe is weakened and timid as a result of the old anti-Christian strategy of getting Christian to fight against Christian. Nevertheless, and this is where he was dead wrong, nevertheless, all of them are with us in spirit. This was probably a very optimistic assessment of conditions in Europe, even for his own time. The English, as well as the French, had already been cuckolds for Jewry for over 200 years. And in the post-war era, the Germans were forced to undergo a process of shame and re-education by which they were molded to the likings of Jewry. The English were disgraced by the loss of their empire and the Germans by the tales of the Holocaust. So Compre was right about their having been weakened and timid. However, for the most part, they were no longer Christian but post-Christian, a term used to describe Europe today. And they also succumbed to Jewish pop culture values and all of the associated evils, such as political Marxism, open borders, feminism, egalitarianism, the emasculation of men, and all of the other related decadence. 
When Compare continues, we would assert that he is fighting the wrong war, so he could never draw the proper lines. The lines he is drawing were textbook World War III scenarios laid out in many Cold War books and patriotic magazines from the 50s through the 70s. But they are not the lines which the prophets of Yahweh and the revelation of Yahshua Christ had drawn. So he continues rather vainly. Next is Asia. In the Near East, only Turkey, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia are still on our side. Of these, only Turkey has any strength, and even its future is now uncertain. Egypt and Syria are deeply enmeshed in the Red Web. The Jewish nation in Palestine is the spark in the powder keg, which may explode into World War III at any time. In the Middle East, Iran and Pakistan still resist red domination. Iraq is doubtful. Afghanistan is red by infiltration. Tibet is conquered by the red Chinese armies and India and is and India is divided and impotent. Part of it wants to go all-out communist under Krishna Menon. The rest was induced by Nehru to just partly oppose communism. Even this was only for reasons of his own personal ambition. Even this faction is sympathetic to communism as a weapon against the right race. In spite of this, India still alternates between begging and blackmailing us for billions of dollars in gifts, which neither helps their self-respect nor ours, like a dog could have any self-respect at all. Here I am not going to care about the details, nor will I care about the validity of the assessments which are made in reference to non-white nations. Compare had another sermon titled The Palace of Strangers. In it, he applied that label, which is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, to the United Nations, and he professed that it was evil to be a part of such an organization. Doing this, he declared that Christians should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, as he himself had cited Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But we also interpret Isaiah's prophecy concerning the palace of strangers a little differently, and believe that the palace of strangers refers to or correlates with Worldwide Mystery Babylon. The United Nations alone is not the Palace of Strangers, but all of the cities of the nations of Christendom have become a Palace of Strangers. But in any case, in his Palace of Strangers sermon, Compare properly rejected the notion of alliances with aliens, while here, in this sermon, he lays out a scenario for the end of days which relies on alliances with aliens. So his own sermons are self-contradictory 
and I would expect them to cause at least some confusion for anyone studying Christian identity from his material alone. As Christians, we do not want Turkey, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, India, or any other non-white nations on our side, nor should we expect it according to the revelation of Christ himself. Compare complained about India taking billions in bribes disguised as aid from America, and that is true. But in the parable of the sheep and the goats, the goats are judged and condemned for their treachery towards the sheep. If Compare had gone so far as to realize all of that, he may have drawn the lines more appropriately. So now he continues in that same regard in which he started, and he says, in the Far East, Burma and Thailand are under heavy and increasing red Chinese pressure and infiltration, before which their will to resist is weakening. As to Taiwan, a number of liberal senators and congressmen in Washington are keeping up the pressure for another and final betrayal of this last outpost of Chinese freedom. And of course, um, and I did not include this in my notes, but after communist China, after the Maoists took over the mainland China, Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan and was able to keep Taiwan and his government there until his death in the mid-1970s. But what Compare is saying about Taiwan here never really happened. But we should have no care for Chinese freedom. What does it matter to the sheep if a goat nation is ruled over by one sort of goat or another? Who cares? But continuing with Compare, now he speaks of the administrations of Roosevelt and Truman, where he comes close but does not really explain that America was also being ruled by goats. In the days when our State Department was openly pro-communist, the goats of the Roosevelt and Truman administrations, we remember the infamous memorandum of policy which said, let Korea fall into the hands of Red China, but try not to let it look like we pushed her. Now, I looked for that statement, and I couldn't find it online. I've never read it. I'm sure Compare did read it somewhere. I don't think he'd lie about it. But I looked for it, and I couldn't find it. A lot of um, Cold War material is actually very difficult to find on the Internet. I have a lot of the McCarthy hearings posted at the Mein Kampf Christ at um, Christagenia. And I remember the day that I found them at the Library of Congress. They were not easy to find. It was not easy to find those transcripts. I did find them, but using URLs that were not linked to any web pages, I was guessing the URLs when I found those pages. So I reposted them for that reason, because they were not easy to find. In the days when our State Department was openly pro-communist, we remember the infamous memorandum of policy which said, let Korea fall into the hands of Red China, but try not to let it look like we pushed her. Now our State Department has grown tired of waiting for Laos to fall into Red hands, so they have quite openly pushed her. 
This probably sets the pattern for Taiwan also. But I would make the assertion, I would also make the assertion that the American wars in Asia also ended for the same reasons that the Berlin Mall was dismantled, because America accepted the Jewish social, economic, and political agendas which were pushed onto the nation by the same Jewish plutocrats who also controlled the communist governments of the Orient. North Korea may be an anomaly, but perhaps it is kept as a token souvenir of the past to make the Cold War seem as though it was real, when it was actually all a ploy for the Jews who controlled both sides of the war in their endeavor to destroy Christendom. Now Kampere continues to discuss Asia. Japan still hangs in the balance. And what Kampere is doing is he's making a worldwide assessment of who our allies would be in the event of war with the Soviet Union. Japan still hangs in the balance, while three factions jockey for power. One, the communists and socialists, always allied for the same purposes, many of whom our own government brought back to Japan after training in Red China and Russia. We forced Japan to admit them and let them carry on their plots. Two, those who remember their defeat at our hands with humiliation and still want revenge. However, they still admire General MacArthur for his courage and integrity. The only humiliation is being beaten by weaklings. So we see that this sermon was very likely written before the death of General MacArthur, but he actually lived a pretty long time. I can remember when he died. I was a young boy, so that was the late 60s, I believe. I may be mistaken, but I don't think he died until at least the late 60s, 67, 68, 69, in there. The third party in Japan, the conservatives, who are held in check by government weakness, forced on them by our own State Department, and by fear of its further reprisals if they oppose the Reds, with firmness. For me, this is tedious. In the end, the revelation tells us that the Japanese will be our enemies. They are our enemies, at least economically, as they have taken advantage of our open markets for 70 years while keeping their own markets highly regulated to protect their own interests. However, this too has been planned. First, it has advanced the, the cause of global economic egalitarianism. While the Asian nations protected their markets, at the same time the Americans did not, and losing much industry to Asia being the result, America became impoverished and Asia enriched. But secondly, if one follows the history of the industrialization of Asia, much of it was financed by the international bankers, but also by Americans themselves. As their retirement fund managers poured billions of dollars into emerging market funds and other related investments in Asia, all to put the Americans themselves, the ones making the investments, out of work. So in large degree, 
our economic decline was self-financed. Now, I could go back to the 19th century, and some of the biggest corporations in Japan were founded and financed and built by the Rockefellers and many American oligarchs and corporations. That's why we have Japan Victor Corp, JVC. It was a spinoff of RCA Victor and Nippon Telephone and Telegraph, NT&T, which was a spinoff of American Telephone and Telegraph, or AT&T. We industrialized Japan, along with the British. But I can't go back that far. So, in large degree, our economic decline was, indeed, self-financed. Then, when Taiwan and South Korea were industrialized, it was also at Japan's expense as companies moved their operations to those places to reap the benefits of cheaper labor and less bureaucracy. That same process then transformed other Pacific Rim nations, eventually China, and lately even Vietnam. The same so-called capitalists moved their operations from country to country, caring only for cheap labor and the ability to exploit people who lack pollution and employee protection laws. There's no pollution laws. There's no employee protection laws. There's no OSHA. There's no EPA. But the transformation of China, which has the biggest labor pool, and which probably now also has the most pollution, to an industrial nation was not possible until Nixon opened the possibility of trade with China. So Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea were exploited first. Other countries, such as the Philippines, India, and Bangladesh, were also factors in the stripping of industrial capacity from the West. But it was always the same international Jews and their corporations who were behind most of the manipulation. But Compre's elaboration on all of this, while we may think that it was naive, also shows that he was invested with the concept that at least some of these nations would or could still be on our side in the great battle at the end of days. So he continues and he asks, where would Japan stand next year? All Asia admires only a winner. There isn't a man on that continent who can understand our respect for a good loser. Finally, the Philippines. They are friendly now, but if either Taiwan or Japan falls to the Reds, can the Philippines hold out? I think the Philippines asked Jimmy Carter to withdraw the United States Navy from its bases. The best we can hope for is neutrality. Remember the Irishman's famous question, who are we neutral against? Vietnam will be sold out to the communists by a compromise deal. The Irish question stems from the Irish neutrality in World War II. Perhaps the last statement Compare made can date this sermon to the early 1960s, the early years of the Vietnam conflict. He continues assessing supposed allies abroad, and of course, South Africa was forced to turn itself over to Negroes under the administration of the elder George Bush, 
But the American agitation for that was originally intensified under Ronald Reagan. So continuing with Compare. Then there is Africa, the only one really civilized nation in it, the Union of South Africa, wants to be on our side. And that is true, of course. They thought that we were normal white folk that hated niggers, too. I mean, who wouldn't? What normal white folk wouldn't? <laughs> However, we allow our politicians to put heavy pressure on the other free nations to line up against it. The old anti-Christian trick of setting Christian against Christian. As for the rest of the area, across the northern end of Africa are the Arab nations, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. There, all civilization, in the present sense of the word, is that of the whites who have already lost control. Actually, the whites lost control in northern Africa 1,500 years ago. The native population is Muslim, still living and thinking in the dark ages of 1,200 years ago when they conquered North Africa. Actually, they conquered North Africa about... 1450 to 1400 years ago, and just before they invaded Spain. They are unfriendly to the West. Well, of course. Middle Africa is all Negro, except for the few whites among them, few colonial whites. These blacks are nearly all savages, with cannibalism still practiced in much of it. Quite recently, in the new Ivory Coast Republic, a member of their parliament was eaten by the natives of his district. Yet these cannibals have as much vote in the United Nations as the United States. That's not quite true, but in some ways it's true. The last I remember from what I read about the United States, and this is 1980s, the United Nations, this is like 1980s memories. I don't know if they've changed it. Is that there were 10 nations on a security council who could veto, any one of them could veto anything. So nothing really happened unless they all agreed. So they don't really have the same vote, but he continues. Now all the different tribes are independent nations, each having a vote in the United Nations. Ethiopia, Sudan, Liberia, Ghana, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Cameroon, Togo, Nigeria, the Mali Federation, the Ivory Coast Republic. I know this is trite. Gambia, Uganda, Tanganyika, Chad, Zanzibar, Rwanda, Urundi, Kenya, Nyasaland, Mauritania, Malagasy, and two different Congo republics. 28 Negro nations, still savages, all hating the white man and his civilization. The cannibals alone can far outvote the entire civilized world. Surprisingly, Compare never elaborated on white South Africa and its prospects of remaining that way. Or on Rhodesia, which was actually formed in 1965, after the decolonization by remaining whites who struggled for their own independence until 1979, when they were supplanted by a propped-up government of Zimbabwe and disenfranchised 
of practically everything they had worked to build since the time of British rule. So perhaps, as his remarks on Vietnam also seem to indicate, this sermon was written before 1965. Now, as he makes a conclusion in regard to this scenario, I am also surprised that he distinguished Muslims from pagans, as Christians should see no difference between the two, except that perhaps the so-called Muslims may actually be counted as Jews. But then again, Jews are also really pagans. Don't tell me Jews aren't pagans. They might have a Talmud. They might claim the Old Testament religion. But anybody who will twirl a freaking chicken over his head, thinking he's going to absolve himself of sin, is a pagan. So Compare continues. Note, there is no Christian nation against us. Five are Muslim. The rest are pagan. This shouldn't surprise us. Actually, more than five are Muslim. And that was a serious misstatement on the part of Compare. Turkey is Muslim. Syria is Muslim. Jordan is Muslim. Saudi Arabia, they're on our side. That's what he said. They're Muslim. Egypt is Muslim. And then all of the North African countries are Muslim. And a lot of the sub-Saharan countries have large numbers of Muslims. And then Iran and Iraq are, are, are Muslim, and Afghanistan and Pakistan are Muslim, and wow. And Compare didn't mention Pakistan, he only mentioned India, so I don't remember when Pakistan was broken off or formed. Maybe it was an oversight on his part, or maybe if Pakistan was formed in the 1970s, but I thought it was before that. I really did. So I didn't think to look up when Pakistan was formed as I prepared this. But Compare didn't mention Rwanda, Rhodesia, which didn't come into being until 1965. It had a longer name. It, it was the Republic of South Rhodesia or something like some different, slightly different official name under British rule. But he didn't mention Zimbabwe. So or Rhodesia. So he sort of left that up in the air. And Pakistan had already adopted a constitution by 1956. Compare didn't mention it. And it's possible, I guess it's possible that this sermon might be as old as 1956, but somehow I doubt it because he mentioned the Vietnam conflict, that Vietnam was going to be betrayed. And in 1956, I'm sure that most Americans probably hadn't even yet heard of Vietnam, at least until midway through the Kennedy administration, through the early 1960s. So that's my opinion. I mean, I can't go back and read all the newspapers in 1956, but I'm sure that that's probably pretty much correct. Vietnam was actually a French problem for several years before it suddenly became an American problem because the French were basically impotent. And I'm sure some Jew was behind that. So Compare continues with his error about the number of Muslim countries against us. Note there is no Christian nation against us. Five are Muslim, the rest are pagan. This shouldn't surprise us. Yahweh has said, and this is the 
title point in his sermon, Yahweh has said that this would be the time of the heathen. Listen to Yahweh's word. Ezekiel chapter 30 tells us, The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy, and say, Thus saith Yahweh, Yahweh, how ye, woe worth the day, for the day is near, even the day of Yahweh, a cloudy day, it shall be the time of the heathen. As Yahweh prophesied, the heathen turn against us. They demand total independence, and, and that's just wrong, then turn to Russia and China. The second psalm warns us, why did the heathen range and the people rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. They demand total independence. So Compare is seeking to legitimize dominion theology and uphold the British or, or American empire, which is horrible in my estimation. But this is also naive. It has always been the time of the heathen. In this regard, as the Muslims have been trying to overrun Europe, both the Arabs in the West and the Turks in the East, for 1,500 years, they invaded North Africa, they invaded Spain, they invaded Spain before the, before the end of the 7th century AD. I don't remember the exact date. It may have been around... 675, 680 AD, perhaps, when they poured out from Algeria across the Strait of Gibraltar and invaded the Iberian Peninsula and began their conquest of Iberia and invaded France. And Charles Martel put them down and sent them back to Iberia, but left it at that. I guess as long as they were on the other side of the Pyrenees Mountains, he really didn't care. But the Turks had crossed into Mesopotamia in the early 11th century, I believe, or maybe in the late 10th century, and conquered Baghdad and worked their way across Anatolia and consumed the entire Byzantine Empire in the east by the 1300s, conquering Constantinople in 1453. They started to make war on Poland, on Lithuania, on Russia, on in the Balkans, on the Serbs, and on Austria. And their last siege of Vienna was as recent as 1680. So I don't know what Compre is thinking. It's always been the time of the heathen. Where Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 3, or I'm sorry, in Ezekiel chapter 30, for the day is near, even the day of Yahweh, a cloudy day, it shall be the time of the heathen. He's actually saying, this is the time that all the heathen are going to be destroyed because it's the same as the day of Yahweh. That's how I read it. So, what are we in? We're really in the time of Jacob's troubles. That's what we're really in. 
But that's okay. We'll let Compare have his due. But he's nevertheless naive. It has always been the time of the heathen because the Muslims have always been trying to overrun Europe, both the Arabs in the West and the Turks in the East, for 1,500 years. The only thing, so there's nothing new today that these people hate us. The only thing that ever stopped them was the force of arms. But they nevertheless succeeded in poisoning the blood of North Africa, Greece, and Anatolia, the Balkans, the Iberian Peninsula, and Central Asia, and the Near and Middle East. Before the Muslim conquest, all of these places were predominantly, if not exclusively, white. Here a pattern should also be noticed. Just like the Cold War ended when America succumbed to the Jewish globalist egalitarian agenda, the Muslim invasions of Europe wound down came to a halt after the nations of Europe succumbed to the Jewish liberal democracy egalitarian agenda. It has been all the same agenda all along, the destruction of white Christendom. Give in to the Jews, surrender, change your form of government, change your currency, let them run your banks, and they'll let you have some peace for a while until they decide how they're going to screw you over next. But while in modern times the agenda was brought to the non-white races in the name of capitalism, in medieval times it was brought under the guise of colonialism. And Compare does not realize that the worst thing whites ever did was to cooperate in the civilizing of the non-white races. As he continues, and he says, there are some who refuse to see that the white man brought these savages the only civilization they ever knew. They ask what right we had to go into Africa. We are just trespassers who should be thrown out. Let the savages be the masters of this continent. These people overlook the fact that nothing merely happens. It always has a cause. The cause of the white Christians ruling these lands, trying to civilize them. It was so ordained by Yahweh. Psalm 1843 states, Thou hast made me the head of the heathen, a people whom I have not known shall serve me. So, Compare is using the psalm to justify giving that which is holy to the dogs. He was invested in British dominion theology, which is bullshit. The only dominion theology that whites should believe in is in Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, Yahweh said to Noah and his sons, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. That is true dominion theology. Concerning the statement, and at the end of his electronic edition of this sermon, Clifton Emmerheiser had made a critical note, so now we will present that, as this is where it belongs, although Clifton originally attached it to the end. In general, with this presentation, Compre made several meaningful points. 
I don't know which points Clifton was talking about. I guess he was just trying to be kind. <laughs> but he shows a tendency to take some passages of Scripture out of context. He makes a statement and then quotes part of a verse of Scripture to support it thusly. The cause of the white, and Clifton's quoting what I have just read, the cause of the white Christians ruling these lands, trying to civilize them, it was so ordained by Yahweh. Psalm 1843 states, Thou hast made me the head of the heathen. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. Clifton continues in response to that. By these lands, Compare means places like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Syria, Burma, Thailand, Taiwan, Laos, the Philippines, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Ethiopia, Sudan, Liberia, Ghana, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Cameroon, Togo, Nigeria, Gambia, Uganda, Tanganyika, Chad, Zanzibar, Rwanda, Urundi, Kenya, Nyasaland, Mauritania, Malagasy, and two different Congo republics. He cites Psalm 1843 and claims it was so ordained by Yahweh. Compre fails to comprehend that at Psalm 1843, and these are still Clifton's words, David had found the kingdom of Israel as King Saul had left it. Saul was instructed to exterminate all of the Amalekites and Edomite tribe. Men, women, infants, along with all their livestock. But Saul saved King Amalek and some of his livestock alive in disobedience to Yahweh. In short, Saul wasn't getting the job done. So when David inherited the kingdom, he found himself in charge of Saul's failures. Second Samuel chapter 8 gives further details. And we are going to criticize Clifton as well as Camperay after I finish this note. At 2 Samuel 8.14, it is recorded that David made servants of Edomites. Surely this could not have been Yahweh's sovereign will, but rather his permissive will until such a time as these Edomites were also to be exterminated, man, woman, and infant. <clears throat> so until such a time, David, during his reign, was to rule over them. But Compare wrongly uses Psalm 1843 as a justification for ruling over all these other unclean heathen nations of our day. Now that is, <clears throat> excuse me, now that is the only comment which Clifton made in regard to the sermon. And that is fine. He was evidently only criticizing Compare within the bounds of Compare's own context. Here, it is my purpose to criticize the entire paradigm which Compare had built with his Cold War interpretation of prophecy. Clifton was being kind to Compare, and deservedly so, but it is my purpose to show why we must move beyond Compare, because his interpretations are dated, and now they are invalid since the prophecy failed to unfold as he expected. This problem affects many more sermons than this one alone. But Clifton is right, for the most part, about Psalm 1843. The Compre unjustly used it to justify colonialism. However, now I must criticize even Clifton's note. <clears throat> Clifton assumed that David wrote this psalm, which is a psalm of thankfulness to Yahweh for deliverance, after he received the kingdom from Saul. 
However, in the psalm, David celebrates his overcoming and conquering his enemies in war, which is only descriptive of a later time in his reign, when he fulfilled the promise to Abraham and ruled over all the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Clinton began to cite 2 Samuel chapter 8, but stopped short at the mention of Edom in verse 14. Instead, Clifton should have cited the entire chapter, or at least the first 15 verses, which I will read here, because when I read them, we will see that Compare certainly is wrong in his interpretation of Psalm 1843. And after this, it came to pass, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. When we read smote in the Old Testament, we should translate it in our heads as attacked. Smiting is not killing them all or eliminating them. As we see here, David smote the Philistines and subdued them. He attacked them and subdued them. That word smote is often misunderstood in scripture by modern English readers. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with the line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. David smote also Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. The promise to Abraham was that his seed would rule from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And that promise was fulfilled in the days of David. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen, and David hoffed all the chariot horses. In other words, he cut their Achilles tendons, I believe, to make them useless, but reserved of them for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to Sukor, Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians 22,000 men. <clears throat> then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezar and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Barothe, cities of Hadadezar, King David took exceedingly much brass. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the hosts of Hadadezar, then Toy sent Joram his son unto King David to salute him and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezar and smitten him. For Hadadezar had wars with Toy, and Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord, with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued. There we have it. 
That's how to interpret Psalm 1843. It is not a prophecy. It is stating a fact about King David for which he is praising Yahweh. Of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadadezar, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and David got him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. I don't know why Clifton started here. He should have ended here. And all they of Edom became David's servants. And Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. And David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. So, this is the context of Psalm 1843, that David was offering thanks to Yahweh for having been made king over not only all of Israel, but all of the surrounding heathen, which would have been better translated as nations, some of which were kindred Adamic nations, and some of which were Canaanite nations. That Hamath that David also came to rule over, that ruler that sent gifts to David, became subject to David. And Hamath was under the rule of Judah until probably around the time of the division of the kingdom when it became independent. But then it was recovered by Jeroboam I, who came to rule over it for Israel. And that is... An explicit explanation in, in the book of Kings, I think it might be in 1 Kings chapter 14, it might be a little sooner, I forget, I'm just paraphrasing, and I really don't, I really don't know exactly where anything is in the Bible, I always got to look, I'm sorry. So this is the context of Psalm 1843. David was offering thanks to Yahweh. And if you read the verses, the 10 verses maybe leading up to verse 43, you will see this. He was making thanks to Yahweh for having been made king, not over only all of Israel, but all of the surrounding nations, some of which were Adamic and some of which were Canaanite. But the passage by itself was not a prophecy and it cannot be properly, it cannot properly be taken out of context to justify colonialism. In addition to his Cold War interpretations of prophecy, Compre also had the baggage of old British Israel Dominion theology, as I also had explained in my critique of his sermon on the sheep and the goats. But still speaking of Compre, I mean, I'm sorry, of colonialism, Compare continues, and he says, There are some who don't like this. A cowardly fear of our own greatness is unworthy of us. Our destiny is set by Yahweh, and our own part is to go where he leads. Therefore, when the heathen assemble and organize themselves against us, they are not merely our enemies, they are Yahweh's enemies and must receive the consequences. Now he quotes Psalm 18, Psalm 83, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 83, 1 through 4 says, Keep not thou silence, O Yahweh. Hold out thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies 
make tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and have consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. <clears throat> Compare citation of Psalm 83 is better and more appropriate than his earlier citation of Psalm 18, which Clifton had critiqued. In Psalm 83, Asaph laments, Asaph was a prophet of the captivity of Judah. Asaph laments that all the nations of the world had come against Judah to destroy it completely. As many of the prophecies concerning the end of the old kingdom, <clears throat> this also has a parallel in relation to the camp of the saints as it is besieged by all nations in the last days, which we read in Revelation chapter 20. Today, the people of God are hidden. In Asaph's time, that was not true. So, Asaph's prophecy must also be a psalm. I mean, I'm sorry, Asaph's psalm must also be a prophecy of the last days. But among other similar scriptures, the purpose of Yahweh is stated in Isaiah chapter 27. In verse 6, he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Then in Jeremiah chapter 46, for I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet I will not leave thee wholly unpunished. If Israel is to be corrected, we know that they should have pushed all the other peoples out of the way rather than attempt to civilize and rule over them. The law, as David rejoiced, was only for Israel. He did not deal so with any other nation. Don't ask me why Capere upheld Dominion theology, the same Dominion theology that was upheld by British Israel, Howard Rand, they should, he should have been an exterminationist. He was an exterminationist when you read the sheep and the goats. When you read that sermon, it was much better. Compare should have learned from the lesson of the Gibeonites which would have informed him that it is a mistake for white Christians to ally themselves with any non-white nation. In a sermon with a similar theme to this one, titled Gathering the Nations, which I'll do a, a critique on probably in the coming months, Compre paraphrased a part of Isaiah chapter 8 and said something similar to what he had also said in The Palace of Strangers once again speaking in reference to the United Nations and saying that Yahweh proclaimed its failure. He said, he quoted, quoting Isaiah, associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces and give ear, all of ye far countries. Gird yourselves and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. Any alliance 
with any non-white nation is an association, not just the United Nations. The same is true of admitting Turkey into NATO. On a lesser scale, the same is true of admitting non-whites into one's own national citizenship and institutions. Even Compare himself cited 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul admonishes us not to join ourselves to the heathen. So he should have realized that his own end-of-day scenario, playing along with Cold War political assessments, was wrong within the context of Christian prophecy. Revelation chapter 20 tells us exactly who our enemies are going to be. Every other nation. It does not matter what political system they use. They are all going to be our enemies. Every other race is going to be our enemies because they are all goats and we are sheep. Thus we read, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog. That tells us to go read Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 for a better understanding of this prophecy. That's exactly what that tells us by mentioning Gog and Magog. Yahshua Christ is saying, as he gives this prophecy, Go read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. He didn't read, he didn't need a footnote. He just had to mention Gog and Magog, equate them with the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. And that tells us, if you want to understand this further, go read where I mentioned Magog and Gog to the prophet Ezekiel. That's what it tells us. Satan shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Compare seemed to never have realized that most of verse 5 of that chapter of the Revelation is an interpolation, and that it is not speaking of a future resurrection of the dead, because that portion of the verse is not original. So he necessarily took a futurist view of the passage and projected all of this to some time after a future and personal thousand-year rule of Christ. But instead, we are now living in this very time when Satan has indeed gathered all nations against the camp of the saints. And we must recognize the Compare's point of view is outdated. Furthermore, Compare himself had also recognized that it was impossible to permanently civilize the savages. Therefore, in his assessment of the Great War at the end of days, he should not have considered any non-whites as possible allies. Every one of them is a goat, but alas, he was caught up in the standard paradigm and conservative assessments 
of Cold War politics. Next, he at least makes a better characterization of the black African nations. I hate to call them nations. As he continues, <clears throat> these black nations accuse us of oppression and imperialism because we have only given them half of our wealth. Instead, they want all of it. Immediately, that calls to mind Rudyard Kipling's words in The White Man's Burden. In that poem, Rudyard Kipling actually does explain that the people that we come to rule over are going to hate us for ruling over them, even if we improve their way of life and their situation. Rudyard Kipling knew they would come to hate us. Read the poem carefully. If you don't get it, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> For real, it's there. <laughs> they want us to surrender our sovereignty and become just a province of the United Nations so they can rule us, reducing us to their level. They've already done that just by being here. However, their alliance against us is condemned by Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 54, Yahweh tells us, Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their righteousness is of me, saith Yahweh. As it is written in the 118th Psalm, Yahweh is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Yahweh takes part takes my part with them that help me, therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes. So we should only care for white Christians and never for alliances with other races or the whims of world rulers who are only men. Then the psalm continues and says, All nations compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compassed me about. Yeah, they compassed me about, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. This too mirrors the prophecy in the revelation of what is going to happen to all nations. That is the true time of the heathen. But Compare is almost accurate where he concludes. It is written in Zephaniah chapter 3. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith Yahweh, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Therefore, our part is not to retreat in panic, nor to apologize in shame for having tried to civilize savages, nor to beggar ourselves by trying to buy the friendship of those who hate Yahweh. 
Where Yahweh had said in Zephaniah, for my determination is to gather nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. We see another exact prophetic parallel to Revelation chapter 20, where it says of the same nations, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Another shortcoming in this sermon is where Compare, <clears throat> in his assessment of the last great battle, had described non-white nations as potential allies. Among these were Japan, India, Turkey, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, and also a few other countries. But he never explained what he thought might happen to those nations if they remained allies. So perhaps he was ignorant of the conflicts in his own line of thinking. In the Sermon on the Sheep and the Goats, he did better to explain that all of the goats go into the lake of the fire, and all of the sheep, which are only the children of Israel, are preserved. Here, however, he may cause confusion where he had said a little earlier that therefore when the heathen assemble and organize themselves against us, they are not merely our enemies, they are Yahweh's enemies and must receive the consequences. But he said nothing of the nations he thought would be allies and who were therefore not assembled against us. So if he really did not think that any of them would be our allies in the end, why did he bother to go down this list and say anything about non-white nations at all? In other places, Compré also saw what was going to come from the civil rights movement, which was, of course, already succeeding to a large extent by the time this sermon was written. In another sermon titled False Prophets, which I, reviewed, which I reviewed here in January of 2018, Compare said the following, in part, never make the mistake of doubting that this is a black revolution. The Negro congressman, Adam Clayton Powell, said this about it. The white man is running scared. The whites won't interfere with you. We are now in the majority in the world. The whites are afraid of us. The Negro has to learn how to fight. This is a black movement. It is ridiculous for the white man to try to leave the Negro. Compare responded that, to that by saying, This is our land. The white Christians have made it what it is. We stand in the middle of the black man's revolution and make no mistake about it, this is a revolution. No black man should be anything but a fighter. Now, at this point in my review of that sermon, I inserted the following note. I am not certain of the content of this last line as the recording is broken. Perhaps it should be no black man should be considered anything but a fighter in the revolution against whites. Therefore, Compare also understood that there was an internal war at least in reference to blacks. At that time, the numbers of Asians, Latinos, and Mestizos in America were probably not perceptibly high enough to be a concern to him. 
But his Cold War end-of-day scenario does not take into account the enemy within, and therefore it is not a sufficient portrayal of the true nature of the time of the heathen. Now, today, identity Christians should be able to do much better. So I hope it is clear that if identity Christians hope to stand firm in the truth, that while they may look to Bertrand Compare as a trailblazer, they certainly cannot remain locked into his peculiar Christian identity teachings. Those teachings certainly do need to be upgraded. And that goes for practically all of his sermons. That has been our endeavor these last 20 years. To stand on his shoulders, but not to stand still. That means that we seek to use the understanding that we gain from his lectures, but to do that in order to strengthen the foundation of our profession rather than leaving it weak, outdated, and stagnant. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will be here in a pre-recorded conversation tomorrow evening with... Our address of Charles Weissman's Lies and Deceptions, Part 5. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.